Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd come this morning and bring life to these words, these things that I'd like to share. Uh, I thank you that you are the author of every good thing, that you lead us into truth, you bring revelation. And Father, as we are here this morning, I want to just pray by your Spirit you'd come and you bring revelation to all of us, that you would release us into the freedom and the liberty of what you have for us this year. And I pray that in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. It's always a privilege to preach, and I'd, I'd like to really do that this morning first so that we can minister out of what I preach. And uh, I'd like to call this this morning simplicity, forgiveness, and unity. So that's the title, and I, I very seldom come up with titles, so there you have it. Simplicity, forgiveness, and unity. And I believe as we go into this new season that God has for us, there really is a call on God's heart for simplicity, for getting back to some basics. And we, we do, we live in a world that is, is awash with complication, with new technology. Uh, things are in constant change and flex. Life is complex, it's sophisticated, it's multi-layered. You could use a lot of words to describe the world in which we live. And decisions never seem to be simple. I don't know about your life, but increasingly I find with my life that things are more and more complex. And more wealth, more greater education, uh, even greater revelation sometimes don't bring simplicity. They can increase complexity in your life. And variety is a good thing, and I love variety, but it often brings stress with it. And at the same time as we are just seeing this amazingly complex environment which we're growing up in, our children are growing up in. Also, nations are going through historic and significant change. And I don't know how many of you um, watched the inauguration of Barack Obama this week, but it was a significant historical moment for the America, but also for us as, as, as the world to uh, inaugurate the first African-American president. And I read something this week which was quite humorous. He, he was quoted as saying, that he thanked his mom for his first name, Barak, but that his dad, who gave him his second name, Hussein, obviously didn't think he was going to run for president of the United States. <laughs> so I just had a chuckle at that. But there is, there is a great complexity. There's diversity. There's change around us all the time. I think it's pr- precisely because of that that people are hungry for simplicity in their lives. And Albert Einstein said this. He said... Out of complexity, find simplicity. And uh, Ralph Emerson, who was a philosopher, he said this, to be simple is to be great. To be simple is to be great. Now, at the risk of everyone who owns a PC, I want to say this, that Apple Mac knows about simplicity. All right? An iPod or an iPhone is a very simple device. If you have an iPod, you'll find that there's one big button in the center that navigates everything. All you have to do is push one button. It is so simple that I can use it and that my wife can use it. It's, it's very simple, all right? We're not, we're not technological geniuses. With a PC, every time something goes wrong, you have to get a technician to come in just to find the file. It's like so complicated, all right? Mac have perfected simplicity. There's one cable that you plug in. There's one cable to the mouse. There's one cable to the printer. And yes, it is more, ex- more uh, expensive than other technologies, but everything is internal. It's, it's elegant. 
It's simple. It's designed. And that's why I like it. And I'm not sponsored by Apple, by the way. Simplicity. I want to suggest to you that Google knows about simple. If you go to the Google webpage, what are you confronted with? Mostly white, very little type, and yet Google processes an infinitely great amount of information very simply. All right? So Google knows it. I'm saying, as we move into the new that God for us has for us, at the heart of church life, I believe there's a cry in God's heart to get back to simplicity. It's part of the new season. And can I qualify that as I talk this morning? First of all, I'm not saying this. I'm not suggesting that as we return to being a simple lifestyle or simplicity at the heart of the church, I'm not suggesting in any way that we move away from doctrine or we move away from biblical conviction. I'm not saying we dumb down. I want to affirm most strongly good biblical doctrine and good biblical foundation. At the heart of the message of Jesus is a simple relationship with Him, a simple childlike faith, a simple trust in God, a simple reliance on the Holy Spirit. Those are the things that I believe God is saying we need to get back to. And good, clear biblical doctrine is what lies at the very heart of what I'm saying. That's what essentially makes the message of the gospel so powerful and so great, is its simplicity. So I'm not saying, secondly, that as I talk about simplicity, I'm not, I'm not asking to be fashionable. I'm not asking to be hip. <laughs> I'm not asking that we mirror the culture. I'm saying that the Bible says we need to change and impact the culture of the day. We're not to mirror it, we're to change it. That's vital to understand. And that's the call on the church, that's the call on this church. And as globalization and technology increase, and are increasingly complex in the midst of that, there needs to be in us a desire and a focus for the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus into that complexity. Am I making sense this morning? The simple process that I am saying that I feel like God is aligning us around and bringing our attention to is to be much more effective in what Jesus called us to do. And he simply said this, go into all the world and make disciples. And I'm saying that as we come into the new season that God has for us, that process of people getting saved and becoming disciples needs to be clear to every single one of us as priests. How that happens, and that's what I'm saying we need to focus our attention on. And that's the kernel that God is bringing our attention to. God never changes, but He chooses to work through divine process. Are you with me? So, he, examples of that. He created the world, divine process. He brought order. And spiritual growth is a process of transformation. A believer being transformed through a process in his life to become more and more like Jesus. And so I want to suggest to you this morning that as we move into the new season that God has for us, that we align ourselves this year even more closely, even more closely than we are, around the simple phrase that Jesus said over and over again. He said, I only do what I hear my Father say. And that's how we need to build, around what God says. So as a, as a church, we have been through a year of profound change and growth. And we stand on the cusp of this new year, a promise of new things in God. And in some ways, some of the detail is still fuzzy. But I want to just say to you that I'm comfortable with that. 
Because why? Because God is the God of the new. The scripture says his mercies are new every morning. And at the same time, God is always the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His mercy is always sure. His grace is ever available. His love is constant. His anger is righteous. His judgments are sure. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So as we go forward into the new, we can go confidently knowing that God doesn't change. But some of the details of some things of how we do stuff might change. But God's still the same. I've discovered this in eight years of leading a church. People want growth. They want the thing to grow, but they don't want it to change. They want it to stay the same. Know the same people, have the same fellowship. They want it to grow, but everything else must stay the same. It's impossible. Change, growth means change. When things grow, they change. And we are in the middle of one of these. So things are going to change, and I hope positively. But in all of this, I felt personally the assuring peace of God convicting me that that's what he wants us to get back to. It's just a simple lifestyle in the midst of complexity. And so you're going to hear this over and over and over again this year. And we're trying to, even in terms of our whole communication of what the church is about, we're trying to simplify things. We've just looked at our mission statement, and I, I mentioned it last week that we're trying to simplify to very basic things. What we want this church to be about. Rooted in Christ. Planted in family. Fruitful in life. That's it. Planted in Christ. Rooted in Christ. Planted in family. Fruitful in life. And our desires over the course of this year that every single person, every priest in this church will know what it means to be rooted in Christ, will know what it means to be planted in this family and will know what it means to be fruitful in your life. If that's all we can communicate and it begins to bubble inside of you, it's a good thing. I believe God wants us to return to the simplicity of the gospel, the wonder of the grace of God, the reality of deep friendship with each other and that those three things combine and, re- and release us and move us into a rich inheritance in Him. That's not complicated. That's very, very simple. And I think the church is a simple and magnificent body that has great power because simply at its roots we preach a simple, simple message. Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ will come again, Christ glorified in my life. That is the Christian gospel. And so can I, I'm not just trying to be, I'm, try, I'm actually trying to be very simple. And uh, I want to say that for me, Jesus was the initiator of simple, not Mac, Jesus. And why do I say that? Because he was revolutionary in the way that he looked at things. And if you read the Gospels, he was incredibly revolutionary. He came into a world which was complex. There were, for example, the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection, And then there were the Pharisees who did. And these two groups were fighting with each other. And into that you you had the Essenes, who were kind of the mystics of the day. All they wanted to do was get alone and be with God. And so they'd go up into the mountains and just commune with the Holy Spirit. And they were the Essenes, basically. And then you had the Zealots, who were the political activists of the day. And it was a very complex political, religious 
system. And then there were the, the ones that supported Herod, the Herod, Herodonians. They were also thrown into the mix. And Jesus comes, and he doesn't pay attention to any of their games, any of their hypocrisy, and he prefers to spend time with tax collectors and prostitutes. He was radical, absolutely radical in his message and the simplicity of his message. Now, as I was doing some reading this week, I discovered this. You want to talk about legalism. He has legalism for you. The, the religious leaders of the, the, the Jewish relig, religious leaders had invented a system of 613 laws. 613 laws. Each one based on a letter of the Ten Commandments. All right? So you know the Ten Commandments. Each of them have words. Every word of the Ten Commandments, they had an acronym, they had a law based on every letter that was contained in the Ten Commandments. 613. And they divided them like this. They found 613 commands out of the Pentateuch, which you know is Moses' five books of the Bible. They divided them into affirmative commands. In other words, do this. And negative commands, don't do that. They had 248 affirmative commands, and they came to that because they believed the body was made up of 248 parts. And so for each part of the body, they had affirmative command. They had 365 negative commands, one for each day of the year. That's legalism. That's complex. And they spent infinite amount of time debating whether they'd actually divided them correctly. And that's the context into Jesus, that Jesus comes and he begins to radically minister. And you know the story in Matthew 22, but just to set the scene for you, Jesus had just confronted the Sadducees and they tried to trap him in terms of his opinion of the resurrection of the dead. And they used this illustration of this lady gets married and her husband dies, etc., 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 a number of times. And what happens in, in, in heaven? Who is her husband? And Jesus, it says, it's a profound thing, Matthew 22, verse 34, it just says, Jesus, it says, he defeated them with his wisdom. Just he speaks a word that shuts them all up. And so now they're mad, so the Pharisees now come and try and do their best to, to get the best of Jesus. They're trying to embarrass him in front of a crowd. They're trying to humiliate him, and they essentially bring a lawyer. Anyone a lawyer here this morning? They bring the, they bring the smart guy. They bring the guy who understands every detail of the 613 laws. And what they actually do is they say to Jesus, they say, out of the 613 laws, which is the most important? Let's see if you can get around that one, Jesus. And in this beautiful reply, and you know it well, he says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, that's the greatest and the first commandment. And the second is like that. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All the law. And then he does something else. He says not only the law. He says all the law and he includes all the prophets. He says all the law and all of the prophets are summarized in that simple phrase. You see, Jesus was simple. And what he did was he took the heart of the law. He took the essence of the law and he summed it up in one single perfect phrase. See, Jesus understood simple. He wasn't lowering the standard of the law. He wasn't abolishing the law. He was capturing it in its essence for the people. And why do I say that? Because Jesus himself says in Matthew five seventeen, he says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law 
or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the, the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. What does Jesus mean? What is he saying? What is he doing? Well, he's actually pointing them towards the grace of God. That's what he's doing. He's pointing people towards himself, the fulfillment of the law, the complete righteousness of Christ, which fulfills the law perfectly for you and I. Incredibly simple. See, Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. And in those days, in the Jewish culture, the yoke of a rabbi was his teaching, his content, what he imparted to people. That was his yoke. And the rabbis were putting teaching on people. They were putting instruction on people that was impossible. It was legalistic. It was crushing for the people. And that essentially pushed them away from the grace of God. And Jesus steps into that context and he says this in Matthew eleven twenty eight. He says, Come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, my teaching. Take my yoke upon you. Take my impartation upon you. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You see, He's making things simple. He's making things uncomplicated. He wasn't offering law. He wasn't offering sets of rules and regulations. He was offering grace. He was offering a simple relationship with himself. That's what it's about. Are you with me this morning? The second thing I love about Jesus and his ministry is that he gets rid of clutter. He gets rid of clutter. Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 11 gives in a wonderful account of, of the times that Jesus cleared something out. He cleared the temple out. He uncluttered the temple. And he wanted to remove every single thing that got in the way of people finding God, that got in the way of people finding God. He was enraged at what's happening in the temple. He had a righteous anger that rose up in him. It says that some of the, the stories that he took a whip and cleaned out the temple. You see, because the temple had an appearance of honoring God, but essentially people had lost their focus. And Jesus objected on three areas. One, that people were buying and selling in the temple. People had come to worship. People had come to offer sacrifices to God. And normally the sellers were outside of the temple. But now the leaders had let people actually set up shop inside the temple. And he objected to that. Secondly, moneylenders were making a profit because the Gentiles would come into the temple and they needed to buy, a, buy a, a dove or whatever for a sacrifice. And so they were charging them to change their money into a currency that would buy stuff. In the, so they were making money out of people, basically. Jesus objected to that. And thirdly, they were using it as, short, as a shortcut to get into town. They were just walking through the temple. And what does Jesus say? His behavior shows an incredible thing about the heart of God because he opposed anything that stop people from finding God. And Mark 11, you know it well, verse 17, Jesus speaking, 
but it says this, they came to the temple, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he wouldn't allow them to carry anything into the temple. And he was teaching them, and he said to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. The heart of the gospel has always been for all nations. Always been so wonderful to look around the congregation this morning, see people from all cultures and nations. The heart of the gospel has always been a multicultural thing. God so loved the world that he gave his son. So what I'm saying, my friends, as we move into this thing of simplicity, is that our lives and the heart of church life needs to be uncluttered from a place of doing church to more resting a place of being church. Not doing church, it's good to do some stuff, but we need to be the church at the heart of all things. Still with me? And then the third little illustration I want to just use is to use the illustration of a coffin. (laughs) I was amazed when my mom died almost a year ago. We went into the funeral parlor to choose a coffin. And I was fascinated because you can get such fancy coffins. You can get padded ones. You can get ones that are gold inlaid. You can get uh, ones that are made of the best wood. They are unbelievable coffins. And they cost literally tens of thousands of whatever your currency is for a coffin. I found that fascinating. This contains the shell of a person that is no longer around. And yet people are prepared, I suppose, to show their love for that person to spend these vast amounts of money on this fancy coffin. And you know, Jesus used that same illustration to attack religious complexity and religious hypocrisy. And he said of the Pharisees, he said, you are a fancy cup on the outside, but the inside is dirty. He went a little bit further. He said, actually, you are like a 20,000 pound coffin. You are all padded on the outside. You are made of the best wood, but on the inside of your life, there is death and there's darkness and there's misery. That's what he said. And that's why they hated him. (laughs) That's why they killed him. You can have all the bells and whistles. You can have the best of everything, but simply your coffin. There's no life on the inside. And I want to say this to you this morning, that unless we deal with some things, our lives can become like that. They can be all righteous on the outside. We can do all the right stuff, but the inside, dark, it's dying, it's meaningless, it's lifeless. And I want to suggest to you, someone had a word... um, about a fire blanket, that God wants to, wants to remove a fire blanket over the church and bring life by His Spirit. And I believe that's what God wants to do. Part of the new thing that God wants to do is breathe life by His Spirit. Breathe, well, what things get in the way of that? I want to suggest to you some things this morning that stop the wind of the Spirit blowing. And the first is simply this, unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. And I want to remind you, uh, a couple of years ago, Shared some teaching of that Artie Kendall. Um, uh, I heard a tape of his called uh, Absolute Forgiveness, some series of messages that he preached. And I want to just share some things out of those this morning to remind you of these things as we move forward. Because I believe that this family has to be continually built upon the reality of forgiveness 
in your life and in my life. Without that bedrock, without that as a basic bedrock of our lives, we are never, ever going to truly be a family that is loving and a family that's free. Unless we live in the reality of forgiveness in our lives. So can I remind you of some of these things? And it really has been an amazing gift to us, this teaching. And I'm trying to do a plug for Artie Kendall also when he comes later in the year, that you'll come and you'll hear what he has to say. But can I just ask you to turn with me to Luke chapter 6, please? And we're going to begin there with this amazing portion of Scripture, Jesus speaking. Jesus speaking, and he says the following. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, verse 27 of Luke chapter 6. He says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and for from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and get the same, back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he, um, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, you will be, put into your, it will be put into your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. I don't know about you. That's incredibly, incredibly challenging. A couple of comments out of that. Unless we learn to forgive totally, we are always going to be in chains. Always. The only one who's in chains is the person who doesn't forgive. And I want to say to you this morning, if you are in this church and you in any way feel wronged, whether you feel you've been misunderstood, misquoted, misjudged, or judged on half the information that is available, whatever, what God requires of all of us, for you and I, is that we totally forgive those that have wronged us. That we release them, and in the releasing of them, we experience release ourselves. And that's the hardest thing that we have to do. It's not easy, but we've got to learn to live in that reality on an ongoing way in our lives. So why do I say that? Why is it so hard to, 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 to forgive your enemies and to bless them? Well, because it's the most natural thing 
for you and I in all of our lives, it's the most natural thing in the world is to defend yourself. It's the most natural thing in the world to say, I told you so. It's the most natural thing in the world to try and get even. It's a natural response. But Jesus says exactly the opposite. He points to grace and he says, bless those that curse you. Bless them. Bless those that falsely accuse you. And why do we need to answer that question and come to terms with that question? Because I believe that God is moving us into an amazing new season. And if we can start to answer that question and live in the reality of forgiveness, I want to say we will answer another question which I want to give you to this morning. Is the most important desire of your heart and your life to see the empowering of God in your life? Do you desire that above all things? Because if you do, if you want to see signs and wonders and see God move, I want to suggest to you that at the heart of everything, we've got to live free. And the way that we live free is we forgive. So what's the anointing? The anointing is simply the, the enabling power of God in our lives on a daily basis, moment to moment. So if you want more of the power of God in your life, I want to say to you this morning, open your heart to what I'm saying. A.W. Tozer says this, you can have as much of God as you want. As much of God as you want. And perhaps it's when we're in times where things are going really well and uh, we have amazing, perhaps in those times we expect to see more of the power of God. But I want to suggest to you as we're going into a season of economic uh, hardship, perhaps, perhaps it's in the moments that you least expect it, Perhaps not in the most wonderful time of worship. Perhaps when you are not experiencing the tangible manifestation of the Holy Spirit upon your life. Perhaps when we're confronted with the reality of unpleasant things and hard things to walk through. I want to suggest to you that perhaps it's in that moment that we need more of the anointing of God and the power of God in our lives than in any other. I want to suggest to you that this morning. More of God's anointing in those times. So how do we define this word when Jesus says enemy, love your enemies, bless your enemies? How do we define that? Well, maybe you're here today and someone has hurt you, someone's lied about you. Maybe your husband or your wife has let you down. Maybe there's a marriage in crisis here this morning. No one knows about that. Maybe you were abused as a child and as a result had an t- awful life. Perhaps you've been hurt, you've been lied about, perhaps you've been betrayed by your best friend. I don't know what it might be, but I want to encourage you this morning, can't allow those things to twist us, make us bitter. We can allow God to change us. We can allow God to come by His grace and so that He can use us. And as He changes us, we'll become powerful, powerful weapons for Him wherever we go. So what does it mean then to bless your enemies? Am I hitting the spot this morning? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Well, Artie Kendall used this phrase, which I thought was amazing. He said, what does it mean to bless your enemies? He said, it simply means to let them off the hook. To let them off the hook. You kiss vindication goodbye. You kiss revenge goodbye. You kiss getting even goodbye. It's like you say to yourself that you know they're not going to get caught for what they've done and you agree with that, and you are happy with that, and you bless them and say, God bless you from the heart. And I want to suggest to you, as we do that, as we live in that reality, we in fact cross over into the supernatural because that is not a natural response. That is a supernatural response that only comes by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that releases supernatural power into your life. 
when you can do that and mean it. There's no natural explanation for that. So can I suggest a couple of other things? To forgive doesn't mean that you approve of what people have done. To forgive totally. You see, God forgives our sins totally, but it doesn't mean that He approves of what we've done. And in the same way, when we forgive others totally, it doesn't mean we approve of what they've done to us. For example, Jesus found the woman in adultery, and He said, well, who are your accusers? He found none, and He said, well, neither do I accuse you, but go and sin no more. He forgave completely. He didn't approve of what she'd done. And the only way for God to forgive our sins was to send Jesus. Jesus, the God-man, to die for us. And he did two things. And here are two theological words that I've used before and I want to use them again. Because they talk about the blood and what God has done for us by the power of the blood of Jesus. The first is expiation, what the blood does for us. What does the blood do for us? It washes away all of our sin. Aren't you glad about that? Amen? But there's another word, propitiation, and what is that talking about is what the blood does for God. What does the blood do for God? And when we begin to understand that, then we begin to understand something incredibly powerful. The blood completely satisfies God's judgment, completely, over our lives. And when you understand that, then you begin to understand that when God forgives you completely, He does not approve of the sin. Because it satisfies his judgment completely. Are you with me? Can I just remind you then? I put some scriptures together just to remind you about what the blood has done for you and I. The righteousness of God, which is Christ, is by faith to all that will believe. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made righteous, made the righteousness of God in him. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us. Who from God has made to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by, by according to His mercy. That's how we are saved. By the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit, which is shed on us abundantly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. That's what the blood has done. For us. Are you with me? So in the same way we forgive others. As we remember what Christ has done for us by the power of his blood, we extend forgiveness completely to others. Secondly, if you forgive totally, it doesn't necessarily mean reconciliation. It doesn't mean necessarily mean reconciliation. Many times it can include that, and we always aim for that, but it doesn't always mean that. Can I give you an example? If you're married and your husband or your wife is unfaithful to you, you may forgive, and forgive completely, but if the person they've been unfaithful with is one of your friends, you don't go on holiday with that person. I mean, that's just crazy. You with me? So we aim for reconciliation, but it doesn't always include that. I'm coming to an end now. When we forgive totally, it doesn't mean that we deny what has happened. Maybe there are some people that choose to say, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe that that person did that. And they live in denial in order to try and cope with what has happened. But totally, when we forgive totally... It's only when we admit what has been done and we come to terms with what has been done 
and we admit that it was awful, and we, in that place we choose to forgive that we are free. Are you with me? And that's an act of the will. There's nothing natural about it. You, you can't wait to be led to forgive somebody. You just do it. It's an act of the will. You don't wait until you are led to have a quiet time in the morning, a devotion. If you wait to be led to have a quiet time in the morning, you'll wait all of your life. There's some things that you just do. I don't wait to feel to be led to run because if I wait to feel led to run, I'm never going to run. It's never convenient. It's never, it's, you're always out of breath. You always get tired. It's always painful. But you've got to do some things because they're the right things to do. Bless your enemies. Bless your enemies. It's not an extra option that we choose. And perhaps we have so little impact in our workplace, guys. Perhaps we have so little impact in our workplace and we're so ineffective in ministering to people because at this, we, we actually react in exactly the same way as everyone else does when we are wronged. We hold that little grudge. I'll get even. Just you wait and see. I'll wait for a moment and then I'll speak and everyone will know how, what you've done to me. And yet Jesus says, release it, let it go. And you'll be free. And he actually says in verse 35, he says, if you do that, your reward will be great. <laughs> your reward will be great. Let people off the hook completely. And he goes on to say, when he teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, he says, the, Greek, the meaning of the Greek there actually is, when he talks about forgiveness, he says, forgive us our trespasses in the measure that we forgive the trespasses of others. That's a little bit of a challenging phrase as well, isn't it? In the measure that we use to forgive others. How many of you want, how many of you want uh, the, 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 the church this year to be a place of power and to be a place of happiness and to be a place of surging forward together and seeing people saved and signs and wonders and miracles? How many of you want that? You can put up your hand. I, I want that with all of my heart. But I've begun to realize more and more as I've reflected on the last couple of years, you know, the thing that breaks the unity of a church is unforgiveness. People holding things on. And uh, if we are wanting to move towards a place of unity, increasingly to a place of unity, I think this needs to be dealt with in our hearts. One killer blow to it. And you know the story in John chapter 1 verse 32. How long have I been going? John chapter 1 verse 32. I want to read it with you. Please turn with me to John chapter 1 verse 32. It simply says this. Again, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit, Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And we all know this wonderful picture of the Holy Spirit coming like a dove and descending and remaining on Jesus. But in that portion, if you just look at the language, the word remain is used twice in those phrases. It's used twice. 
And there are those amazing times, and sometimes in times of worship, we experience those amazing times, and they cannot be described with this absolute sense of peace, of contentment. Some people laugh, some people cry, some people fall down, but you know that the Holy Spirit is on you. It's just a tangible reality that is there for that moment. And I know the Holy Spirit is with us all the time when we get saved. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives, and He lives with us, and I'm not into the kind of feeling of, uh, of anything. But there are times, there have been moments in my life, and I'm sure moments in your life, where you just experience the Holy Spirit in an incredible way. You know what I'm talking about. And yet here, John says, the Holy Spirit remains on Jesus. Remains on Jesus. And Ephesians 4.30, Paul writes, and he says this, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. And here again, the Greek root means to get your feelings hurt. So we can hurt the feelings of the Holy Spirit, in a sense. The Holy Spirit is a sensitive person, and we can grieve Him easily. And I found in my life, I don't know about you, but that sense of the, just the unbelievable peace of God, we lose that when we allow things to get the better of us. I don't know about you, but every time I drive on the M25, I can feel like God is with me, and I can be in a moment of worship and listening to a CD. The moment that I shout to that clown who cut in front of me, it's like in that moment, the Spirit is grieved, and that sense of Him just being there is lost. You know what I'm talking about? Ever had like, it doesn't happen to you ever, I'm sure. <laughs> Happens to me. And I'm sure the, you know the atmosphere in your house. There's a sense of you can have the best time with your kids in the morning. Everyone's out of bed. You have a devotion. Whatever you do in your routine, have breakfast together. And then suddenly someone snaps at the breakfast table. And that sense of the tangible, ungrieved presence of the Holy Spirit with you is like evaporates. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Because you obviously don't have breakfast like that ever in your house. And Paul writes in, in Ephesians and he adds to what he's just said. He says this, Let all bitterness, let all anger and wrath and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another. Be kind. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We all want forgiveness. Everybody needs a Savior. We sing that. When I sing that song, it's warm and fuzzy. That's a cool song to sing. Everyone wants a Savior. Everyone loves compassion. And yet, at the same time, we're so slow to extend compassion to other people and extend grace and forgiveness to others. We claim it for ourselves in bucket loads and we let it out of our lives drip by drip by drip. See, the good news is this, and there's always good news, right? The good news is this. Everyone here who's saved has the Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's the good news. Every single one of us, when we are saved, receive the full measure of the Holy Spirit, but we don't always live in the full measure of the ungrieved Holy Spirit in our lives. The good news is when we grieve the Holy Spirit, we don't lose our salvation. And that's what Paul says in that first portion of Ephesians that I wrote to you. Wrote, read to you. He said, uh, let me read it again. It says, um, 
Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed on the day of redemption. The bad news is that when we grieve the Holy Spirit, that sense of the anointing of God lifts from us. We recognized when the fellowship is sweet, when unity is sweet in the church, you know what it is? It's that in, in each of us, we each recognize that we, the ungrieved Holy Spirit. We each recognize in each other that thing. And that's when our fellowship is sweet. Where two or three are together, there's sweet fellowship. You know, all it takes to break that is someone to walk into the midst of that and say, let me just tell you what's wrong with this. Let me tell you a couple of things that you, don't, you need to know. And immediately, that sense of unity, that sense of the peace of God, the grace of God, it's gone. No longer unity of the Spirit. Can you imagine what it would be like this year if this congregation, every single one of us in this congregation, was filled to the fullest measure of the ungrieved Spirit of God? Can you imagine what it would be like? Because I want to tell you, we would not only shake this place, we'd shake St. Albans, we'd shake, shake London, we'd shake this, the UK. There would be an outpouring of the Spirit, absolutely like we've not seen before. There would be an absolute unparalleled, I'm trying to search for words now, outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But you know, it's never going to happen never going to happen if there's pointing of the finger, bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness. God won't bend the rules for anybody. Not for you, not for me. And I loved Kendall, he used this example of uh, Trafalgar Square. Remember in the good old days when the pigeons used to be in Trafalgar Square? Now they have hawks. They're no pigeons anymore because the hawks kind of scare them all off. But he used this illustration. He said that pigeons look very much like doves, but they... they not the same. <laughs> Pigeons and doves are very, very different. Pigeons are loud and boisterous and aggressive, and doves are peaceful and are easily scared away. And he said, sometimes our lives are full of pigeon religion. Isn't it true? Full of pigeon religion, all noisy and aggressive and clamorous and loud and unsettled, and yet... We, deep down, we do long for that resting. Dove of the Holy Spirit upon our lives. So I want to I quote Dudley, who used to say, you've got 30 seconds to forgive. And we often used to say it as a joke. And people said, oh, are you being legalistic? No, this is the reality. This is the reality. When the longer you hold on to unforgiveness in your life, the more bitter, the more twisted, the more angry you become. And then people don't want to be around you. And the Holy Spirit can't use you. And the church becomes an ugly place. I'm trying to encourage you this morning, guys. Eh? I really am. Can I also say in conclusion, and Helen's got a prophetic uh, picture that God gave her. I wanted to share that as well. And then we're going to worship together and we're going to pray and we're going to minister and let God come. Touch people. You know, if we're forgiven totally, then there's no need to tell anyone else what's happened to you if there's that urge to get on the phone and just to let people know what someone has done I just want to tell you I just want to tell you there's no forgiveness really is there because there's that sense of trying to get even 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 1 says an amazing thing it says this in the living bible translation it says 
A further reason for forgiveness is that we are not outsmarted by Satan. The devil's trying to get the best of the church. How does he do that? By people just holding on to little things in their hearts and their lives. And God wants to bring release from those things so that we can move into the fullness of what Jesus has for us, the fullness of the new thing that God is doing. When you hold a grudge, you're saying to the devil, come in and get me. If if your life is full of anger and constant irritation, perhaps you don't require the laying on of hands. Perhaps you require a decision of your will to forgive. Is that okay? (laughs) Why should we forgive those? Why should we bless those that curse us? Well, because... We want the Spirit of God to come down on this church. Simply that. We want the full measure of the Holy Spirit to power us and come down upon us and transform us. The question is, this morning, is that important to you? Does it really, really matter to you? Is it the most important thing that you want for your own life and for the life of this church? Because if it is, we've just got to do some business with God. We've got to make decisions in our lives and release any small tiny little thing might even seem insignificant to you you've got to release it so that God can come and do the fullness of what he has for us <coughs> Helen come and share that picture that you have and then if the musicians can get ready please we're going to worship together And um, I don't know if, I know maybe some people aren't here this morning, but just as a matter of interest, how many people here um, were with us in the first three or four years of the church plant? So that's very interesting, because I felt God give me this very key scripture from Joshua chapter 4. And uh, what's happened in Joshua chapter 4 is the Israelites have come through the desert Moses has died, and now Joshua is their leader, and he's taking them and into the promised land that God had spoken to Moses, but they've hit a barrier, and that is the, the Jordan River. And um, we see this miraculous thing that God does where by his mighty hand he divides the Jordan River, and Joshua is able to lead the people through to the other side. And it says in Joshua 4 verse 19, Now the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, which Joshua said each man from uh, one of the leaders of each tribe were to take a stone from the middle of the river, and they set them up in Gilgal. And then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, 
as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And just as I read that thing, that just as God had done at the Red Sea with Moses, remember Moses took all those people out of Egypt, and they came up to that Red Sea, they hit a barrier, and uh, God said, extend your your uh, um, stick, your staff over the, the sea, and this amazing thing happened. Miraculously, the waters parted, and he led the whole nation across. And I felt God say that when we planted the church initially, maybe that was like the Moses time. It was the beginning. And God did some amazing things that were a testimony to us of his faithfulness and of his mighty hand at work in the establishing and planting of this church. But it is now we are going into a Joshua season. We're going into a season we were about to move into the promises of God that he's had for us. But we are also going to see the mighty hand of God come and be at work because it is for this generation that we also need memorial stones and testimonies to God's greatness because he's going to take us to more things down the road. And so for those of us who were there in the beginning and we said, yes, God, we saw what you did and we have faith in our hearts. He's doing it again for this next season, for us who are going to this next following a Joshua season saying, I'm going to give you a memorial, a testimony for your own life of the mighty hand of God. And when your children ask, what is that stone? What is that story? You'll be able to point back and say, that was when God led me through dry land when I had to cross the Jordan River. I don't know what the Jordan River is for you, but I know God has got a wonderful Jordan River for us corporately, and he's going to give us his miraculous mighty hand, and that's going to be our testimony. And um, I just, out of that, as I was praying, um, it's just been amazing. I Very often when Ant is preparing, we often share and we talk through, and some of I mean, I don't really know what he was preparing this time. We haven't really chatted through. But I, I had this um, time on Tuesday morning. I was just praying and meditating. And I felt as I was praying, the Holy Spirit came on me. And um, I just felt my hands raised up, both my hands like this, up to, upwards towards heaven. And he said to me, he said, as I was with Moses, so shall I be with you. And I felt like him reminding me, as not that the real Moses, but in the sense of as he was with us in the beginning, so he will be with us now. And I'm sure as he was with Moses. But uh, and I just felt him say, I'm surrounding you with those who will hold up your arms. Do you remember when Moses sat at that battle and his arms were tired and God put around him Aaron and her to hold up his arms? And I just feel the sense of unity that God's wanting to bring, that we're going to be those that hold up each other's arms to see the victories that God has in store for us. And then as I was doing this, and maybe this, I'm not trying to sound weird or a bit flaky, but I really just felt the Holy Spirit come on me. And as I was praying, I suddenly felt the Holy Spirit uh, clenched my fists like this. And I felt God give me these words, take no captives, take no captives. And he said to me, I'm causing you to close your fists to those things that you will have victory over. I want you to have no part with that which is unclean. 
This is a battle that will purge and cleanse my church. I'm ridding you, and I feel like they're speaking of this corporately. I'm ridding you of the fear of man. It has been a noose around your neck. Close your fist and do not embrace its paralysis and intimidation, for it has held you in a false embrace that has made you dull to my voice and my power which is at hand. And I just want to speak that out to, to this church this morning, that God is giving us victory, but do not embrace those things he gives you victory over in your lives. And I believe that the fear of man and intimidation is something he's wanting to break over this church, that we can dance, we can be liberal, we can be released into the fullness of his joy. And then as I carried on praying, I felt God say, now these, I'm showing you another analogy with this closed fist, and it's a, this fist are fists of anger. And I felt him say, for this as our church, which is something of what Ant has brought, your anger with me and others has made you withhold your love. Bend your knee, humble yourself, in this you have not found my pleasure or my joy. I long for you to love and respond with freedom in me, and your anger has made you withhold. Return to your first love, unclench your fists of anger, and receive my washing and cleansing, for I am restoring a liberality, a joy, an overflow of love to you, my church. The devil has had a foothold in your lives. Forgiveness is the power to break his dark work and disband his evil intent. Complete forgiveness without reserve. And then the spirit took my unclenched fists and my arms became lax at my side, my fists unclenched, and all strain drained from my arms. And I felt the Lord say, do not resist me, do not fight me, do not fight my work and my processes in your lives. Do not resist my Holy Spirit. When I call to you, do not turn your back in rebellion. When I draw alongside you, do not find your comfort in the distractions that constantly beckon for your attention. Do not resist me, says the Lord. Unclench your fists and open your heart to me. And I really believe that God wants to do business with us as a community. I believe he wants to bring such liberal, generous overflow of joy, that sweetness of unity that commands his blessing. And I I don't know. No, if even saying this, I mean, Anne said everything so beautifully and wonderfully this morning, and I don't want to labor anything, but I just feel God wants to just bring a release over people this morning. Thank you. I just, um, it's funny, just as a confirmation, Vicky came to me this morning. She had a dream last night. Do you know God speaks through dreams? He can. So all those dreams are not just because you had cheese last night. Sometimes God does speak to us through our dreams. Sometimes it can be our worries and our subconscious coming to the fore. But she just had this amazing dream, and I'll just summarize it. But she had a, a she came to the church building, and there were many people in the building. And when she came in, this is in her dream. She had a sense that there was just a just a no joy, and there was a maybe like a disorderliness in people's hearts. And, um, and she felt like even underneath the building, there was this dark water. And, uh, but when she went outside again, the building was transformed in this beautiful, glistening, bright, new, fresh building. And the water had become transparent and clear and sparkling. And uh, she said that in the front of the building was a huge rubbish bin, and as people were coming inside, they were throwing away their rubbish. 
throwing away things before they entered in. And um, just things that God was saying, I don't want you to tolerate these things in your life anymore. Get rid of that. Get rid of that. And it was as they threw it away and they came in, there was just a whole freshness and a newness um, that God was going to do in people's lives. And I really believe that God just wants us to release. And it says, the sin that so easily entangles, let's rid of those things so we can run we can run the race that God has for us. I hope, I hope you don't hear any condemnation in my heart. Uh, it's really not my heart. I, just, I really feel it's the fear of God that he wants to come and bring a wonderful release into his people so we can run with joy. Thanks, Helen. I want to pray before we worship. Is that right? And I ask you just to close your eyes. I want to just encourage you this morning as uh, I've preached and Helen brought those wonderful pictures, that if you know that there are things that um, you've been carrying, perhaps they might not seem huge to anybody else, but, but you know that there are things that you have been carrying in your heart. Perhaps you do feel like your fists have been angry and clenched. I want to ask you to respond this morning. I want to ask you to stand. While everyone's eyes are closed, I want to ask you to stand. And by saying standing, you're saying, Lord, I'm no longer going to point the finger. I'm not going to tell people what's happened. I'm going to speak blessing over every single person. That I'm not going to carry anything into this new thing, this new season. I'm just laying it at your feet right now. I want to ask you to stand, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to worship. I ask God for a release of joy, a release of grace, a release of every good thing for this new season. Father, thank you for these guys and girls standing. I thank you, Lord, that you are here this morning. I thank you, how about your spirit? I thank you, Lord, that you've come to set people free. And so, Lord, we just welcome you. A gentle, sweet presence of Christ. I ask that you'd come and you'd remain on us this morning. We know that you're with us always, but Lord, just that tangible sense of you being on us powerfully. We pray that you'd come right now. And Father, we pray. Lord, we're sorry for our anger. We're sorry for any bitterness. We're sorry. We ask that right now the blood of Jesus would once again come. We pray, Lord, that you will. You'd forgive us for our bitterness. Forgive those that have hurt us. And, Lord, we choose this morning to set people free. We thank you. And you are the heavenly dove. We pray that you'd come, that you'd remain. We thank you, Lord, that you're so patient with us. You're so gracious to us. And, Lord, we extend that same patience and grace to others this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you, Lord. Let's just begin to worship him. Enjoy him. If you'd like to stand, let's stand. And we're going to just express our love for the great king.